usually how I like to start these conversations is really about an individual's journey and to, to really get their their idea of, of what their company, their brand, their organization, really what the mission is and how it came about. So can you just talk a little bit about the, the journey of the resolution project, how it came about, and a little bit about the mission? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Grant, so much for... Uh for having me on today. The Resolution Project started out of a, out of actually a, a program, an extracurricular that uh, that I, I did in college. And so it's called World Model United Nations. It's a conference where young people from around the world come together and, and talk about global issues. You know, there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement. It's five days of people convening, which sounds like a completely foreign concept in today's world. But at the end of those five days, everybody just goes home. And that was uh, to, to me and to, to my co-founders, that was such a missed opportunity. We we're like, there's so much energy, so much enthusiasm, so much passion here. And these are all young people that can do things. They're, they're able to sign contracts and you know act as adults, start businesses, start organizations. Maybe they just need a little spark. Maybe there's just a little push that they right. need and we could see some astonishing things. And so um, over the course of a few years, we, we basically did some, uh, some, some testing, some piloting to, to make sure that that appetite was there. And we frankly, we were just blown away time and time again. People were, were like, listen, it's great that you're asking us what we think, but like show up with money so we can do something. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's always great to get called out by the, by the people that you're trying to help that you know, uh, that, that you think you can engage to be part of part of this work. And so, uh, so, you know, sort of 2007, we put together the, uh, sorry, 2009, I should say, we put together the very first uh, uh, competition, not far from from where you are right now. Uh, it was in The Hague. And uh, oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. And so we, uh, we had that first competition, we found five incredible young people that wanted to start projects in, in Rwanda, in, uh, in Mexico, and in, uh, in, in Venezuela. And uh, we were off to the races from there. Uh, it was, you know, we spent a few years with just that partnership with that conference, and we did it entirely as volunteers. Uh, and then we started to build up a group of other committed volunteers built a board, brought on our first uh, our first professional hire, and then expanded to a number of other uh, partner organizations to host other conferences and competitions and try to spread the word and activate more young leaders. Uh, and so, you know, our mission is to develop socially responsible young leaders and empower them to make a positive impact today. But we do that through through social entrepreneurship. We we fund, mentor, and support young people in starting social enterprises in their home communities. Um, all over the world and across the U.S. And so to date, we've, we've got over 550 uh, fellows over 81 countries who've benefited uh, nearly 3 million people uh, with wow. their work. And uh, so it's been a, a, a crazy journey. Uh, I started out as a volunteer, as a board member, as one of the, the founders there, put in very, very long hours in those first <laughs> years. And we didn't have a, a team and then uh, stayed very involved and uh, transitioned over professionally myself uh, just over four years ago. So it's been, uh, it's, been a, it's been a big journey. What are some of the, when we talk about social entrepreneurship, I, I think it's, it can be a, still a little bit undefined uh, perhaps sure. to, to, to people that are, are sort of maybe new to the idea or the word. So are you able to give us just some examples maybe uh, of some of the, the entrepreneurs that come in, some of the ideas that they have, um, and, and what are they trying to solve? And obviously each community is different, so each problem will be different and you'll have a different 
entrepreneur and try to solve different things. But if you can kind of give us some examples of social entrepreneurship you see from your point of view from from the fellows that that come in the organization and are, are starting great projects and companies. Sure. You know, I think to to your point, uh, the business models vary. Uh, the organizational models vary. We have some that are for-profit, some that are non-profit, some that have hybrid structures. We have some that are, you know, sort of close community projects, some that are designed to scale. You know, I'll give you a couple of examples and I'll try to pepper them in throughout just to, because sure. these folks inspire me so much. And uh, I think, I think they'll inspire, uh, I think they'll also inspire some, uh, some of the folks that are, that are kind enough to listen. But uh you know, just to maybe maybe do some some norm busting right from the start, we have a fellow who's uh, based in Durban, South Africa, um, whose work is to uh, to create architecture, and he runs an architecture firm um, that's focused on basically dismantling the physical manifestations of apartheid. And so it's a it's a you know sort of for profit uh, design uh, design group. Um, that really uses a community-focused approach to, uh, to, to reshape townships, to create economic hubs within them, to create dignified housing that is, uh, that's really thoughtful about how it connects to various uh, uh, pieces of infrastructure so that it can undo a lot of the harm that was done uh, within that system. Uh, that pervade those so long and so pervasive. So that's that's one example on on one end of the spectrum. And then we have a we have a fellow in the in the U.S. Uh, I, I actually I should name check him. His name's Wandile Mtiane. He's an incredible young man. WhatsApping uh, just a couple of days ago about about some of the things that he's working on. And then you know on the other end of the spectrum in terms of of models, we have uh, we have a few fellows: uh, Christina Safran, Ashley Tritt. And um, Leanna Rosenman, um, who started Project Heal. Project Heal was is a nonprofit specifically focused on serving those with eating disorders uh, in the U.S. and helping them find and access treatment and supporting uh, their family members uh, as they go through that process as well. And so those are just sort of two very different models. Um, but you can see that at the core of it, there's a, there's a social issue that they're trying to address either uh, through a market-based approach or because they're combating a market failure um, to make it worth and work. And fundamentally, that's what we think about when we think about uh, social entrepreneurship. Is there a market that can support this or is there a market failure where this is something that needs, uh, needs support? Um, and so that's, that's been sort of at the core. I should note that uh, Christina actually went on to start a uh, a for profit entity called Equip that just raised a, a monster round. I think it was seventeen million. Uh, they announced last week. What's that too? Uh, Equip also serves uh, uh, individuals with uh, with eating disorders, and it's able to uh, it's able to access market support for them through insurance. Uh, mm. So they've built actual uh, actual channels for people to get. Uh, the support and service they need uh, through partnerships with insurance and with uh, with uh, healthcare providers, so that the only option isn't this extraordinarily expensive right. uh, treatment. Uh, you know, sort of like uh, yeah, these these sort of treatments where you have to go and and be offsite for for months to recover. Right. So yeah, there's some interesting stuff. I, I kind of want to give people the the scope of of what Resolution has been able to do so far. Right. With mm-hmm. sort of- the amount of fellows, the uh, amount of ventures, you know, the, the amount of people impacted, and, and maybe if you could touch on maybe the amount uh, sort of funded, right? Like when 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 sort of a fellow yeah. 
comes in and, and what's the process for them, right? Is it, are they just trying to get money? They're obviously trying to get maybe advisement and counsel, kind of go through everything that a fellow would receive, you know, when, when they come on board. So we see a few different avenues of support that we provide to our fellows. And so when they come in, the first thing they do is they go through a, a very light diligence process uh, that's usually designed because we, we get them at the idea phase. We get them right at the right. very beginning. If they've already started, it's too late for us. Uh, and we find that that has actually a massive leveling effect in terms of getting the folks that are most proximate to the issues and don't already have access to resources. Um, so getting them at, at that idea stage is critical for us. And then we, we run this really light diligence phase that helps them uh, clarify any partnerships, uh, really, you know, sort of dig into their, their reasoning for it and gets them to the point where they're ready to start. And at that point, they get a grant between three and $5,000 usually. Um, they get matched with, with two mentors. Uh, we call them guides in our system. And then they've got a set of resources that we uh, that we share with them uh, that are built around partnerships that we have and that are built around you know sort of knowledge bases that we've that we've collected. And so what they're they're getting at that stage is they're getting access to, of course, the resolution community, which is uh, about six hundred volunteers, uh, partnerships with several large corporations and the, an expert network that we've uh, that we've cultivated as well. They get access to pro bono services. Uh, we've built a lot of partnerships with, uh, with legal, marketing, consulting, financial services, a, a whole number of organizations yeah, that, are, that are willing to offer in-kind support. And then, uh, and then we've built out uh, what we call our, our pathway partnerships. And so you know, we think it's great to get them started and give them a little bit of cash and a lot of know-how and a lot of access to human capital. But if we just sort of stop there, a lot of these ventures aren't going to be able to, to move forward. Right. right. Um, and that's not because the leadership isn't there. It's because the depth of network isn't there and the speed can't be there if the network isn't there. Um, it's and, really hard to, it's, and it's really hard. <laughs> it too, is right? really hard, right? And so like, you're talking about really, really motivated young people where the issues that they're, that they're fighting are close to their hearts, right? Christine and Liana openly speak about their, their battle with eating disorder. Wandile openly speaks about uh, what it was like growing up uh, in, in apartheid South Africa, right? These are, these are issues that they lived with. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to flip that to where, you know, instead of needing to be a 45 or 50 year old entrepreneur who's gone and built up your, your network, these are young people that are saying, I want to do something now. I want to get started with impact now. We're trying to accelerate resources into, into their push. And part of that is extending runway ahead of them. And so we built these partnerships with over 100 social sector organizations to do exactly that, to, uh, to help them see, identify, and get the next opportunity. Because, you know, a $5,000 grant, it might be enough, especially, you know, as a, as a college student, to use some resources that your university has, to ask some friends to help out, and you can get a proof of concept going, right? But you're not going to be able to build a scaling business. So our goal with that $5,000 is to get them to that proof of concept, make sure their impact evaluation is really tight so that they're able to make a compelling case for their next $10,000 and for the next $20,000, the 25, the 50, right? And allow them to keep trading up on the value that they're generating and the impact that they're creating. And, and we've seen a, a lot of good success there. And so organizations, um, 
you know, I think that, that we all admire, like at Going Green, uh, Watson, yeah. Unreasonable are all organizations that we've that we've partnered with in, in this type of way. And it, it really has uh, uh, has created uh, certainly for the for the fellows visibility on where they're going with this. Right. Because right. if we want good people in the social sector, we have to recruit for them. Right. If, if corporations, if if governments. Right, if every organization out there is recruiting for this talent in the social sector, we're not willing to do that, right? And we're not willing to show them what our commitment needs and how it can become a career and a sustainable path forward for themselves. How can we expect them to step up? So that's that's been a big piece there. So it's that that funding, that those those access, those subject matter experts, that human capital, those pro bono uh, supports that community and those, those upcoming and curated opportunities uh, to help them really find their path forward. I'd love to get your perspective on this. And I know it can be, it can be weird to answer and maybe even difficult to answer because it, it kind of, it, it's kind of bordering on both sides of both, you know, the nonprofit side and both the entrepreneur sort of private sector side. Um, but if we, we kind of look at, the world of allocation of capital, right? Whether it's allocating capital to like a lot of capital to a nonprofit organization, right? Or a lot of capital to, you know, startups, right? I just look at the amount of money that has been just vanished, right? I mean, we're talking probably trillions of dollars that's probably gone through the venture capital route, route and just mm-hmm. sort of vanished, right? After, you know, sort of decades, maybe the last 25 30 years of money that has just gone into companies to try to scale so big, right. To be sort of unicorns yeah. and it just doesn't happen. Right. Obviously every company can't be like that. And, and I always wonder and, and look at like, why can't we get, you know, those individuals throwing, you know, X amount of millions of dollars at the next HR app, right. Or the accounting software that, you know, at this point we have enough, right. Like, can we move on from, kind of building products that its job is to just like take out another competing product rather than looking at ventures like like this, right? Like social entrepreneurs where it's, the, the barrier to entry is so much lower, right? We're talking, you know, 25, 50K can go so much further for somebody in Venezuela to try to start a community changing venture, right? A generational changing yeah. venture to grow a community out of poverty, it's so much more cost effective and the return on investment might not be in money, it might not be in dollars, right? But it, it's in sort of the evolution and maturity of, you know, and I, and I might be saying blissful thinking here, but of a, an entire country, right? At some point, an entire city, right? Or, or at least an area, right? That seems to yield so much more from of a much smaller asset of money than just kind of throwing, throwing crazy amount of money at, at startups that you hope will get to this unicorn level and go public. I see. I feel like investors are just kind of missing the boat on a lot of opportunities to really change uh, society and 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 perhaps solve poverty through through that realm through through that idea. So Grant, I, I think it's a great point, and I I think um, you know I don't want to be simplistic about it. I think mm-hmm. at at a very, very fundamental level, you are absolutely right. And I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think the, I think maybe the slightly more nuanced note that I'd make is the reason we ended up only giving three to $5,000 grants is because what we were seeing and what we were finding 
is that early on, companies usually don't need a lot of cash. They usually need a lot of time to test and space to test and market access to begin to see if their product really has legs. And that can be done really expensively, or it can be done really, really capital efficiently. And I think that a lot of organizations don't challenge themselves to be really capital efficient from the start, right? There's the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, I think that can be taken too far. But in general, if you leverage your existing resources and are able to show that you're able to do something with that, then how much more confident should an investor be that you can do a lot more with more, right? And so I think you're, you're, you're hitting it on the head that, that sort of big dollars have been flooded into a system where, uh, you know, sort of out of desire to create these types of unicorns, instead of saying, like, I can have this surefire community impact on an almost one for one basis or a one for three basis or whatever the, the actual ratio is, but a known ratio basis, right? For, uh, you know, as, as just part of it. And I, I think, um, look, we have, we have fellows who are now venture backed in their, in their, uh, in, mm-hmm. in their programs. And I don't think that's a, um, uh, I don't think they're unicorns or outliers. I think there actually has been an emerging trend. It's not, it's not uniform and it's not, you know, it's not all of Silicon Valley that's doing this, right? And there, are, but you're seeing this, um, this continued emergence of, uh, of, of what's called impact investing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to suggest that people, people don't know what it is. Um, but I think the, you know, anyone can sort of call themselves an impact investor. I think what we're seeing now um, is that organizations are taking the that type of approach uh, of impact investing of of like, hey, we could have a really really mediocre business on uh, you know on the sort of cash flow metrics and the you know something like that. Maybe it's something that throws off a, mm-hmm. a decent amount of cash, like sure. a, uh, but isn't going to be that like sixty times exit in, yep. in five years. Right, um, but it's going to be something that's going to cons- consistently throw off cash, consistently grow, and consistently help people in the process. Right, right? and those are those are really really powerful. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I hear you. I think there's um, there's greater opportunity there for for organizations to play. And I, I do think that we we have uh, certainly from what I've seen there there are parts of the venture space that continue to sort of flood organizations early with cash. And I, I think there's, there's a lot of benefit to, to giving it just a little bit longer uh, to get that proof and to make sure that it's going in the right direction. When you talk to fellows coming in um, and they're maybe on the fence of making their company or idea a company versus a nonprofit, how do you go through that discovery stage where you recommend or they kind of tell you, hey, I want to start a nonprofit or, you know, you maybe you go through it and say, hey, this could actually be a good business or vice versa. So my, hey, I want to do this as a business. And you might say, or the group might, the mentor might, might say, hey, this might be better as a nonprofit organization rather than a for-profit venture. Yeah. Do you see that come through the fellowship pipeline a lot where there's mm-hmm. this sort of like undecided how do you grapple with deciding, you know, because to me, that's a big step, right? I mean, that's a first really big step in a, in, a, in a history of, of a venture. It's huge. Look, I, I think um, step one usually is, uh, this is a highly jurisdictional question, right? And so 
Uh, sometimes it comes down to a conversation between them and a lawyer, uh, you know, in terms of what they're looking to do and what their options are. I, I try to, uh, you know, and, and other mentors try to try to offer some insight into how to approach that. Because for many of these individuals, many of these fellows, like this is their first conversation with a professional services provider. Like it's pretty intimidating for that to be like a, you know, a, a lawyer from a top firm. We have great pro bono, pro bono partners. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're really great, but it's still, you know, you're, you're a college kid with an idea that you've only shared with a half dozen people. You just want an award right. for it. Right. Um, you know, you're going to sit down with some big, big shot lawyer and, uh, and, and ask them to advise you while holding your ground. And so, you know, we do a little bit of like, don't forget you're the client, like at the end of the day, like this is, you know, whether you're pro bono or not, they have a, they have obligations to you as a client and you need to know what you're hoping for out of this. You don't need to, they'll advise you on the law side, right? But you need to know what you want. Is this something where you you know, sort of investment is going to be the primary vehicle for growing it, or is it going to be uh, donations? Is this something that qualifies as a public charity, right? Can you actually get people to donate? Who would be the donating market, um, you know, on the, on the for-profit side? Like, who is the buyer on this? Do you have a, a single buyer? Do you have multiple buyers, right? Is it, is it something like insurance that's highly regulated? Um, is it something that involves one of the government ministries or not, right? Like, so you sort of go through a lot of these types of questions to ask them uh, generally to think about those things more than anything, right? And at the end of the day, when folks come to me and they say, I want to start a nonprofit, mm -hmm. I say, that's great. <laughs> Are you prepared to do all the things that it takes to maintain one? Because a lot of people don't think about it this way, but nonprofits are a regulated industry. Yeah. You have mandatory public filings and you have to make them or else you can be investigated by the, the attorney general's office. And, and you should be, right? Like, I, I, I don't mean that to call out anyone for their individual totally. circumstances, but right on a public, public good basis, right? You're operating in trust for the public. Um, you're, you're doing something because the public needs it. Um, and so you should be held accountable to the public. And, uh, and, and I, with the proliferation of nonprofits over the years, I don't think uh, a lot of people necessarily think that way. Uh, certainly not at the early stages, and that's not their fault. It's, it's a larger societal failing, I think. All of that is to say, we spend a lot of time unpacking that. And we say, look, you, if you're doing it for the tax benefit, right, mm -hmm. you can't be taxed on money that you, can't, that, that you don't make. Like you have to make money to be taxed on it. So if you're just testing out a concept, you might be better off incorporating and maybe incorporating in the style of a nonprofit in that state, but not actually filing for something like 501c3 status, you know, or maybe starting with an LLC and flipping it into another entity mm -hmm. down the road to, uh, to, to be able to, uh, to test out the concept, make sure that it's something that's going to grow and sustain itself and that it's worth investing in. Because the, the last thing we need is another defunct nonprofit. Right. Like, um, yeah. so, so we, we do a good amount of unpacking on both those sides. Um, you know, we've seen a couple of instances where fellows have converted their entities at some point, right. Um, either one way or the other. We've also seen a number of situations where, you know, they need to sort of square away the business model first and then, uh, figure out what to do on their, on their sort of give back program. So for example, you know, one of our fellows, uh, Annie, who started the jackfruit company, if you, uh, if you're vegetarian or vegan, you've probably seen this at a Whole yeah, Foods. Or I know that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Annie started the Jackfruit Company, and uh, 
and she she works uh, solely with smallholder farmers uh, in India, Sri Lanka, and I think a, a few in Mexico as well to to produce jackfruit. And so there's a lot of social good that comes out of that. But given the model she was employing and the growth strategy she was taking, it made more sense to sort of carve out a piece of the work for a uh, basically for the jackfruit foundation for for a, a nonprofit or a foundation type entity to be sort of a sidecar uh, that would get benefits of the business and would allow them to, to put back resources into, uh, into the communities that they're working in. So, you know, while the business model itself is really great and does a lot of good, some of those, you know, sort of traditionally nonprofity pieces um, that maybe could get more scrutiny from investors that wanted to be a little grumpy about something, you know, it gives space to, to create more, uh, you know, sort of more intentional strategies there and a, a more specific mission that doesn't risk running into some of those other uh, efforts. This is, this is something so important. And I think I'd love to, to touch on a little bit more is the idea of maybe the pros and cons of, of doing what you just said, right? Companies reach maybe a certain level or they have uh, a company that has a model that's just really, really, it, it enables the, the the opportunity to actually have like a sister quote unquote foundation. Mm-hmm. How would you like for people listening who maybe have a company that is a decent, right? Decent, or maybe like the Jackfruit company sort of size, right? And they're thinking maybe of starting a foundation as part of their company. And I, and I, I kind of see this all the time where companies make a decision to partner maybe with a nonprofit that's already kind of doing the work, right? That they mm-hmm. that they would maybe possibly do through their own, and they say, "Hey, I don't want sort of the headache of having our own foundation, right? It's hard enough to yeah. even just to run a, a company. Um, I'm going to have you know partner with somebody who's really doing it well, or, or starting, you know, like you said, a, a foundation with, within the company. What are some of the the pros and cons, and and maybe just some some tips or advice on Maybe who should do that? At what point in the business should you think about starting to possibly do that? Yeah, I mean, look, the the first thing that I'd say is, you know, you've got to come to this work authentically, and it's got to be a part of how you think about it, right? So, you know, if you sort of park it in the like, oh, maybe I'll get to it one day space, you know, you're going to have to similarly outsource the the impact, right? Because you're not going to be, you don't. If you're growing a business on one side and then you're like, oh, and now we're going to try to get into this kind of work of giving back, you're already too far removed from your from the people right. that you'd be working with. You're better off leaving it to someone else to, to push it forward generally. Um, if you're if you're doing some work, you know, uh, in Annie's case, like she's worked directly with smallholder farmers and they're, they're core to, to building up processing capacity in local facilities, but she also understands their families their community, right? The, the social dynamics, the educational opportunities, the infrastructure limitations, right? And, and her investment there is in, uh, in elevating those systems so that these, these farmers and their families can thrive. And so that it's not just, you know, sort of like a bottom of the pyramid job um, where it's really something where they, they gain skills, they grow, they learn, their children, you know, I mean, fundamentally in this world, what do we want? We want our kids to do better than we did, right? And so it gives them a stepping stone and an opportunity to build that life for their for their family. Um, and that's a that's a really really uh, powerful thing. Um, you know, if you've gotten to that work in just how you've constructed your your business model, um, how you've constructed your entity, and how it works, then you're in a great position to build up your own foundation. 
Um, and look, none of this takes away from the organizations that do set up a foundation down the road. It's just going to be harder. It's going to be rockier. It's going to be less efficient um, than when you than when you do it. It's great to find ways to give back. I think um, you know this sort of learn, earn, return model that exists out there is uh, is a bit dated for the speed at which business happens, for the trackability and traceability of supply supply chains. We know a lot more than we ever have before. And so, you know, for a corporation to sort of arrive at it very far down the road feels a little disingenuous. Um, at the same time, some organizations that have done that have gone on to do a lot of good, right? And so right. Um, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say don't do it. I would say just try to be as authentic uh, with yourself, with your customers, with your beneficiaries, with the people that you're trying to help as possible. Make sure you've, you've built alignment in. I do think that there's no other way to do business soon enough. Right. Of course, you can you can still do business however you'd like in many ways, but that's changing. And the biggest driver there has been has been customers. It's been consumers. It's yeah. been you know it it's been from the push uh, that folks like Greta have created. And let's not forget, Greta is a young person trying to create change. Right, and that's that's what this work's all about, at least for me. I want to. I have one more question, and then uh, the final question. So two more here. Uh, bear with me a little bit on, on this one, and. I've always wondered this because I think that organizations like yours are in a very like amazing position to create so much impact for a very long period of time. And I almost look at Resolution Project, even Echoing Green uh, to a certain extent, as well as others like like you guys, is that you're almost like an accelerator, right? Like no different than a, a sort of tech accelerator where you bring in super young companies, not even companies, right? Just ideas, they're not even companies yet, right? but you, you sort of help them through the process, right? So- I mean, I'd, I'd, say, we, I'd say we invest in talent at the end yeah, of the day. Like exactly, that and, and, that's, and that's investing in a lot of different ways, right? Not just monetarily. I, I wanted to know whether it's from, from a nonprofit perspective or if it's you know, the resolution you know, accelerator, right? LLC or something. But when you have so many fellows coming in, so many really cool creative companies and you're helping them along the way, is there sort of an opportunity for your organization? And it's kind of the question we, we just talked about, but actually spin off like a company, right? And say, hey, we're going to help these companies and we just take 3% of equity or something for everybody that comes through the fellowship and raises a certain amount of money at the end of it or something like that. I look at it from a business um, idea or from a sustainability from the nonprofit point of view, right? Because then you have sort of income that's not donation-based, right? You're not going out trying totally. to get dollars in. Is that is that possible through the organizational structure or would you have to create a separate entity, you know, like you said, a resolution accelerator or something like that to, to do that? And, 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 and should nonprofits think about doing that? That is investing in talent, right? Can they get a return from that since they put time and energy into these, into these young social entrepreneurs? Yeah, Grant, it's a, it's a great question. And it's something that we uh, that we're working on figuring out. Figuring out, but you know, to to answer your question fully, I, I do need to start with sort of a reminder of like um, as much as these are becoming uh, successful social entrepreneurs in terms of both impact and uh, you know, in, in some cases also in terms of uh, of revenue and profit. Uh, you gotta you gotta always keep your mission at the center, right? And um, you know, when you look at the talent that we're working with, we're talking about folks who basically don't have enough network 
um, or their own wherewithal to put together a a family and friends round of three to five thousand dollars. Sure. Right. And which so is which is a lot I, of people, though. Right. I think we. It, well, on a global scale, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a vast majority. It's, it's people, a vast majority. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I see. It's always funny when people raise like 700 grand from friends and family around. I'm like, you know right. who can do that? Like that's right. 1% you. of the world, <laughs> right? Like right. it's not, it's, that's not a thing totally. that occurs in regular life. But, but my point is, uh, is not that, right. It's not the volume of it. It's actually the, the power dynamics and the, uh, and the inequality that exists um, which is to say that if we showed up and we said for three to five thousand dollars we're going to take a piece of your company that doesn't yet exist, feels predatory. Yeah, um, I, I so, really, I really right? went down the line after that stage. Right, right. No, no, no. And I, I, so I, but I didn't, I didn't want to. Um, sure. I wasn't sure. attributing to that. Your, your question was exactly what what we do down the line. But so we've been really keen to make sure that we don't, uh, we don't distort that power dynamic. Um, we don't add to it as a as a funder because that's always a, an issue. Sure. Um, and then the other the other piece of it is, you know, we build this really trusting relationship with these young people that's focused around like how can we help? What's going wrong that we can help with? Right? Like, where do you need that network, that push, that introduction? You know, that that visibility on the next step, that legal advice, whatever the case is, right? Like. Where can we help on that? And that's not something that successful 20-year-olds that have, you know, sort of uh, faked it till they made it to get a chance at like a higher education uh, generally feel that comfortable with. So there's a lot of sort of breaking those things down. And it is in advance of like setting them up for this, this like big push of, of future successes to be possible. We have been, uh, we've been in the process of, of working through something we call the, the resolution studio that that is exactly that yeah, but it's designed great. to be a second bite at the apple mm -hmm. um, for us and also for the fellows right basically it's a it's saying like hey was what you got meaningful uh, you know to the point that you would have paid for it had you had the money right, right. and is what you think you can get out of this at an acceler in an accelerated format, right? In a, in a, in a fashion that's designed to, to move you up through the, through the process quickly. Is that worth putting some, some equity behind? And so, yeah, so we have been looking at that. Um, you know, we're sort of, to, to the points I was making earlier, we're very cautious to, um, to build a plan that's focused on funding itself only through that, because we do think that investment by the social sector into uh, you know, into talent is a bit of a market failure at this point. Um, there are improvements, uh, but it's still currently a market failure. And so we don't want to try to, you know, sort of squeeze the other end of it just to, to make the front end work. We still expect that there's going to be the need for philanthropic uh, push um, at some level for the, for the near future. But yeah, in the midterm, in the long term, hopefully this can be a sustainable vehicle and one that also increasingly puts back into the local communities that launch them because, yep. you know, it's not just us. Yep. Um, and we've, you know, we've, we've launched innovation hubs in Kigali and Nairobi and Singapore. Um, you know, these communities are also helping to launch social entrepreneurs in those regions. And, you know, as we see that type of infrastructure expand, we're expecting to see also the desire for, for give back into those communities that made it possible. And, you know, we'd encourage that. So last question I have is a little bit about the future and yeah. sort of what success. I love the future. 
what's success, <laughs> what success looks like, you know, for you, whether it's, it's sort of personally and professionally through, through the organization, but also maybe for the organization, when, when you, you sit down and, and you talk to the board or whatever, but, you know, three to five years, you know, what do we want to be? What, what are the, the metrics or, or goals rather that, that we want to hit, right? Is it, yeah. is it, is it more fellows, right? Is it more innovation hubs around the world? Um, is it more, you know, fellows actually, you know, getting, you know, funding like, uh, was it, was it um, not Annie, but the uh, Christina? Yeah. The, the app for the eating disorders, yeah. right. Is that, is that a success metric that you guys look at and be like, this is something great we did. Like we helped this entrepreneur through this journey to get to this point. And it doesn't have to be like just successes internally. Right. I mean, it doesn't have to be totally. something you put on the site, but just, internally what do you what do you look like for three to five years success from your point of view totally and look you, you open this up to also also personally and i mean on that front you know like my my primary focus is to be a a good husband a good dad you know and uh and and a good son a good brother like you know all those things and, and a good friend to people um you know because at the end of the day like you probably notice this just from 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 the conversation but like life is about relationships i think that's what Mm -hmm. what is most difficult right now about about being in lockdown being in this pandemic it, it should say universally difficult right whether you're suffering economically or not whether you're suffering from from health reasons or not whether you're suffering through like so many of the of the the primary and secondary effects of this everyone is feeling isolated and lonely um and separated from from people that they that they value um and so it starts from that for me and maybe to contextualize some of the goals that we're looking at, you know, it's about continuing to invest in this incredible talent um, and do it in a way where we can continue to support them on the level that we, uh, you know, that we commit to, which is being there for them when the going gets tough. And so, you know, we've often said, we're not trying to be an organization that puts out, uh, you know, thousands of fellowships a year. We want to do the ones that we take on really, really, really well. And so, um, you know, I take all of these wins by fellows as big wins for the organization because um, it's impact that wasn't going to happen otherwise. Um, that's that's what it means to be there for them when it's getting started. It, it's it's a chance to be there and help make it happen. Um, and so, you know, I, I continue to see a portfolio that's going to be both broad uh, and deep, um, but in different ventures. Right? Some ventures are going to be really broad. Right. Um, you know, reach thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Some are going to be really deep, one community only, but mm -hmm. really, really changing that community. Right. Um, and and we very much embrace that approach. Um, so we don't we don't drive towards uh, sort of one concerted impact number, like a global like right. you know number of people impacted, number of people benefited. I would like to see a few things, and these are things that we're working on. One is, uh, you know, really supporting those fellows that are in those hyper growth phases, and making sure that there's a full fledged vehicle to push that forward, so that we can we can help them through the transitions around that, through the push that happens around that. Um, and because we've been really good at it so far, we just haven't systematized it completely. So working heavily on that, and then. You know, I would like us to to find ways to accelerate the number of, of fellows we're we're launching, but to do so responsibly. I don't want to just sort of go fast and break stuff because right. breaking stuff is people's careers in this case, right? Yeah. Like the organization might have uh, you know another ten thousand dollars to uh, to be able to 
to use for something that went wrong, right? Something that broke, but you, it can't be, uh, a fellow can't be the experiment for that. Yeah, um, great right? point. And so, so, you know, we've, we've focused on uh, shifting our organizational selection model to be around uh, the sort of regionalization that allows us to be more deeply uh, in, invested and embedded in, uh, in regions. That's Latin America, the Middle East, North Africa, uh, the African continent as a whole, uh, South Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia are all regions that we we look at and you know sort of focus on. Um, and then domestically in the U.S., we've taken on this really big push around uh, supporting Black, Indigenous, people of color founders. And all of these areas that I just gave, um, regional and uh, and uh, and ethnic groupings, they're all designed. Uh, to build this community capacity internally, right? So when I talked about the hubs, the reason the hubs matter is because it starts to move the capacity out of resolution and into communities. Resolution shouldn't be doing this forever, right? The, the reason communities don't have the, the strength, the power, the financial support, the, uh, the, the, uh, the human, human capital support, the, the network, the reason they don't have those things to do it uh, is, is generally because of history. Um, it's because of systemic things. Uh, it's because of, of, uh, of racism. It's because of colonialism. It's because of resource grabs that have taken place. And it's you know, taken place in acute formats over the years uh, more recently under the general guise of capitalism and things that are good for the world and globalization. It's also you know, sort of created this massive brain drain, uh, which is another form of extraction. Uh, totally. And what resolution does is it allows... Right. It allows and supports young people to find an opportunity back home to take some resources yep. that, so uh, that, we, that we've, we've gathered. Right. And give them the chance to go back home, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the vast majority of people don't want to leave their home and their families and the people they love and the community they grew up in just for a paycheck. Right. They're, they're leaving for opportunities. And so if you give them the opportunity to take all their smarts, all their wits, all their know how you pair that with their proximity to the issue, how much they care about, how much they love and care about their neighbor, you get some really powerful things. So um, look, long-term resolution needs to get out of this business because communities need to get into it. In the meantime, we want to build up as much capacity and we want to build up as as many uh, case points so that we can recognize that young people aren't a problem to be solved for. They are somebody, you know, they're, they're people that have the most to lose if we don't engage them. Um, and the most to offer because they've got a lifetime of impact ahead of them. So that's that's where that's where I'm looking, Grant. It's amazing. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I love the point you made. I I have to just touch on it real quick because I, I always think about this and and sort of like the mission of a nonprofit should actually, and not in all cases, but let's say ninety percent, like the mission of a nonprofit should 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 be not to exist, right? To that's be right. so so good at what they 100%. do. That that they their organization is irrelevant and they shouldn't exist. Yeah, we want to put ourselves out of business. It, it's it's such an amazing way to look at it, and, and I just I just love to I just love that point. I wanted to make sure that we re-express it a little bit because I think it's such a such a powerful statement that that most I think most nonprofits could could uh, hear by, and I just it, it's so great. So appreciate for for that that little that little touch of inspiration right there. Um, that was great. Uh, but thank you so much, George. It was an amazing conversation. I'm, I'm so glad we got to finally do this. Uh, best of luck the rest of this year. And, and obviously, 
as long as resolution exists, best of luck. I appreciate it, Grant. And, uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll take that, I'll take that luck onto whatever comes next. Cause, uh, you know, I think more, more, more than anything, uh, you know, what we see with these social entrepreneurs and, you know, I'd like to consider myself one too, is, uh, there's always another problem to go on to. So, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully we can, we can solve this one, rock out on it and, uh, and, and move on to the next one.